to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Production Incorporated. I am co-host Connor McNamara Stratton, and with my good friend Jack Rossiter Munley, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking, and you have a spare minute, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. You can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I'm at Connor M. Stratton, and Jack is at Jack Rossiter Mudd. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking, and on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. And our website, where you can find all our past episodes, is closetalking.com. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Close Talking. I am one of your co-hosts, Connor McNamara Stratton. And I'm your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And we are here with you once again with a, another wonderful poem. As always, the poem is called First Snow. It is by the poet Arya Aber. Yeah, I was drawn to this poem for a lot of reasons. And this whole collection It's from her book, Hard Damage, which came out in 2019. It won the Prairie Schooner Prize. It's published by, I think, the University of Nebraska Press. It's really great. And, you know, the uh, United States recently been withdrawing finally from um, Afghanistan and the, uh, the Taliban has taken control of Kabul and the country. And so there's been a lot of, you know, the news and the devastation from the war uh, over the entirety of the war has been, you know, kind of circulating a lot. And Aber is a um, child of Afghan refugees. She was born in Germany. She has lived in the U.S. as well. I think she's actually currently a Stegner Fellow at Stanford. And, you know, has been very active in trying to share resources and, uh, you know, show ways of supporting Afghans on the ground and those who are trying to relocate. And, and yeah, I, I had heard of Aber before, but I admit that I had not, I don't know if I had encountered her poetry. And then I found on my library uh, website, I was able to check out the book. And so I started reading the book. Book is incredible. It's so good. It's one of those books that I wish we could talk about like every poem in the book but i was especially drawn to this one poem first snow and i realized that partly because of its length and the context a little introductory context is a little helpful before we start reading basically my general read of the poem is like knowing the biography a little bit is helpful in that the way that i was like setting it up in my head is like the poem is imagining herself as like an infant or a very young child just entering perhaps Germany or like the new country to which um, her parents have come to from Afghanistan. So yeah, that might be helpful for a first listen. 
And this is First Snow by Arya Aber. How easy for snow to turn to ice, for snow to disappear the light from the ragged frame of chestnut trees around the warehouse by what's left of wild chicory, scraped sculptures, weeping dogbane. Hunger borders this land while snow turns all to immigrants. Snow salts the embankment where turtles wash ashore, literally hundreds of them, frozen hard like grenades of tear gas thrown across a barbed wire fence. But who of their free will would ever want to climb that fence to live here? Who would pray each night for grace, hoping to pass through the darkened veil of shit to bear witness to smokestacks, wild champion, knapweed? Who'd loiter around cricks glistening with oil, which once gone will, like death, at last democratize us all? On potato sacks in the snow-capped abandoned warehouse, there huddle and sit the soiled refugees, bereft, cow-eyed, picking dirt off their scalps, their shelled souls. Among them, wordless, is my mother, and nestled on her lap is I, in love with the light of the first snow of my life, so awed and doubtful still of what lengths the frost wills to go and what shape it will then take. There's a lot going on in this one. <laughs> yes. There is a lot. It's so good. It's really, really good. Um, yes, there is a lot. <laughs> um, yeah, and and I, you know, we we always do our little play-by-play, -play, little narrative summary before we get going with the poem. I kind of jump-started that before we read it, but it might be helpful to, to go a little more in depth on that. But yeah, basically, you know, we have this scene and I'm kind of reading it as Germany, but it doesn't necessarily have to be that. It just is, you know, some, some kind of industrialized place where it snows, I think, you know, based on the warehouses and the smokestacks in the snow. And so then basically there's sort of like a description of, of this warehouse in this area with the snow. And then the speaker of the poem is kind of asking like who of their free will, you know, would basically want to live here, would want to climb this barbed wire fence, you know, who would, who would be a, who would want to be a refugee here given this. And then the poem kind of turns you know, after asking that question and sort of zooms in to the people who are in the warehouse, the soiled refugees, bereft, cow-eyed. Um, and one of them is the speaker's mother. And then on her mother's lap is the speaker who's like seeing the first snow ever and being like, wow, snow is beautiful. But then there's kind of some more ambivalent feelings about it. So that's kind of like a general, very surface 
what's going on in the poem. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And I think, yeah, the way that it begins and ends on the snow is an interesting kind of formal way of encapsulating the experience within because maybe you're inside a building and the whole poem is kind of inside of these two little portions that focus almost entirely on the snow. The poem itself is presented in couplets and the first couplet and the last couplet are basically focused on like snow and frost and the outside. And so you sort of feel like you're inside when you're with the poem and then there's this outside that's all around it, which is sort of interesting on like a formal level. No, I, I completely agree with that. And, and in the book, in the notes, Aber notes that the syn the syntax and beginning of First Snow are inspired by Winter Study by Mark Wonderlich, which I had not read before. But there is, um, you can definitely hear the resonance in the beginning of Winter Study is two days of snow, then ice and the deer peer from the ragged curtain of trees. Hunger wills them, hunger pulls them to the compass of light spilling from the farmyard pole. Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of that ragged hunger. And then at the end where it talks about what the frost wills. Exactly. That's yeah, that's all throughout it. That's really interesting. Yeah. Something that kind of interested me about this, and I'm curious for your thoughts, is to what degree did you feel that the snow, the ice, the frost was personified? in the poem how much of a sense did you get of that because i was also sort of thinking of we talked a little while ago about uh Asip mendelstam's alone i stare into the frost's white face and you kind of get a sense of what the frost and the uh like cold mean on a level a little bit beyond just being symbolic you get a feeling that there's there's some personification going on i'm curious what you thought in this poem did you get a sense of that at all did you feel something was going on along those lines or not so much yeah i know i i definitely think so you know if we think about the so like what you know what is the snow actually doing in the poem like you know okay how easy for it to turn to ice and then for snow to disappear the light from the ragged frame of chestnut trees around the warehouse um is very interesting it's not we're not quite at personification yet but like disappear as a verb is pretty intense um and like and it's a it's a very kind of beautiful and a evocative way of explaining it where like you have the ice which is very reflective um and so you can kind of see these trees in like a new kind of way and then the snow it's also reflective but not as much i guess and so it's like once the snow falls onto the ice then that that the light that allowed you to sort of see that like kind of like background of of chestnut trees is like so much less and so the snow is kind of like you know <laughs> disappearing it which is very interesting and then the next sort of you know, moment of snow is like hunger borders this land while snow turns all to immigrants. Snow salts the embankment. And that's a very big kind of figurative statement and rendering of snow, like it turns all to immigrants. And I'm not like, especially in the first read, I'm not like quite sure how to, like what to make of that 
line, like what does it mean for snow to turn everything to immigrants, you know? Um, but at the same time, you know, that moment does a lot of work in terms of like, okay, like hunger borders this land while snow turns all the immigrants, like we're, we're getting some of the issues and themes that this poem is concerned with here. And snow has a role to play in a way. But then like by the end, and this last stanza, especially so odd and doubtful still of what lengths the frost wills to go and what shape it will then take. So taking one step back, thinking about the general poem in context, it's like you have this refugee family um, leaving their home, going to this new place, and there's snow, which the first snow of the speaker's life, it's like that's the embodying feature of the new place. And I think, and then thinking about it in terms of like the moment of like who of their free will would ever want to climb that fence to live here, there's like a sense of partly it's just like who would want to live not in their home if they didn't have to, which is, I think, you know, um, certainly in mainstream discourses is rarely acknowledged that it's it's like you know the definition of being a refugee is like you have to leave your home because it's not safe and so there's that also but then there's also like and and there's other characterizations too that i think you know are really interesting of like the enjambments of in the beginning like for snow to disappear the light from the ragged and then it's a line break frame of chestnut trees around the warehouse. And then it's like scraped line break sculptures, weeping dog bane. I don't know, the ragged and the scraped, like it's, it's kind of, it's a rough, <laughs> it's snowy and it's also ragged and scraped, right? This new place that they're coming to. And then it's like, who would want to, to go to this place to bear witness to smokestacks? uh wild champion and knapweed and so in a way the snow is is representing this place that's maybe not from the speaker's perspective super desirable to live to to live in but then on the other hand it's like you know the speaker uh nestled on her lap as i in love with the light of the first snow of my life so odd and doubtful still of what lengths the frost wills to go, what shape it will then take. So the speaker is like, wow, this snow is totally beautiful, which kind of complicates the connotations of the place. But then there's this so odd and doubtful, like both, I think, which is interesting. Um, but then I think the heaviest personification comes in this moment where it's like, of what lengths the frost wills to go and what shape it will then take where like the frost has an a will of its own and like wondering yeah like what is it going to look like and so in in like the most general meaning sense it's like okay if the snow and the frost is like this new place what what is my life going to look like in this new place and also like like how will this place make my life into a certain kind of way in a way there was an interesting 
Arya Aber read, gave a reading at, uh, it's called like the Lunch Poems series. Um, yeah, the UC Berkeley series. Exactly, which is a great like poetry series that's that's gone on for a while. And she read this poem and before she read it, she said, I wrote- Part of this book uh, in Wisconsin where I experienced uh, the most difficult winter of my life um, and realized that snow was quite oppressive and that inspired the next couple of poems that I'm gonna read. And as a Illinoisan who now lives in Minnesota and you are an Illinoisan who now lives in Vermont, Oh, yeah. uh we hear that we we've taken your feedback on the yep. snow and uh <laughs> not much we can do about it but whoo yeah yes. i was in chicago for the polar vortex of the winter of 2013 i think it was into 2014 it was pretty oppressive a lot of snow and like negative 20 degrees and i know you were in minnesota for the one a couple years ago and uh it's it's yeah it's a real it's a real experience that kind of a winter <laughs> yeah um yeah because it is i mean it's the kind of winter where like you're inside you're under every blanket you own and still somehow it's cold yeah like you have the heat on if you're lucky enough to live like in a place with heat like i was in a ground floor apartment with heat in the ceiling which is not that helpful because heat rises um so it was like you know and, and you cover all the windows because you walk past the window and it's a blast of cold air and like it does feel oppressive because i normally feel this way about heat more so than cold because you just can't get out of it like maybe you have air conditioning if you don't have air conditioning maybe you can sit in front of a fan but it's just like a, an oppressive blanket of heat and humidity that is it feels inescapable and i think that this kind of cold and winter can feel that way um yeah that's a real it's a really good reading the the lunch the lunch poets reading that she did definitely mm -hmm. recommended um but yeah that idea of the the snow as sort of oppressive was interesting um particularly then coming back to this poem and reading it again with that kind of in mind because it does you're right like maybe in the largest sense the snow is sort of standing in for the new place but it also feels like a very particular aspect of that new place and something that I sort of, I don't know, latched onto in, in rereading the poem is noticing like, yeah, I think it was that after reading the poem, you have that injection of the word wills at the end that does make it seem like there's uh, a degree of desire in the snow and the frost. But even at the beginning, you get a sense that it has kind of agency because it's so easily affects the environment there's this sense of like easy power to it that i found really kind of captivating and thinking about you know what is snow it's like it's a natural force it's uh like it's almost inevitable in certain climates like there will be snow at some point and it's uh white <laughs> for, for lack of anything like it's not that complicated to uh tease that out but like that is an important aspect of snow and frost and stuff like it's white, which I think has a particular kind of resonance uh, for moving to a Western country. Um, mm -hmm. But especially the idea that like, it's easy for it to have this massive impact that it doesn't ever reflect on because it's just a natural, you know, it's in its natural state. It's just doing what snow does. But by doing that, 
it makes life really hard for human beings because we're not actually built to like live in snow. And I think I also kind of paused over that um, snow turns all to immigrants line because it is one of those lines that sticks out for being so big and kind of, you know, the way that the enjambment works, it is in the middle of a sentence technically, but it comes out as this fairly declarative um, like statement about snow and in a poem called First Snow that carries even more weight. Um, but thinking about it, uh, it does in the sense that it like forces everyone to begin to order their behavior around something that's outside of their control in the, in the broadest sense. Um, and it makes everyone have to negotiate a natural system that is not built for them in a way that those who are refugees or immigrants are navigating legal systems that are like constructed around life and death for them that are like these bureaucratic systems that have to be navigated in the way that harsh weather might have to be navigated it's not you know on the same order but it's kind of forcing you outside of your own perspective and uh thinking about the first couple lines how easy for snow to turn to ice for snow to disappear the light from the ragged frame of chestnut trees it's like yeah the snow has all the power here it can just go from being snow to being ice maybe it's frost it goes through the water cycle it's change it's impermanence it's like it's doing whatever it wants uh it made me think of at the end of the sixth season of Mad Men, which I probably reference more than necessary on this podcast, <laughs> uh, the uh, spoilers, I guess, whatever for Mad Men, but uh, Peggy has been, has, she and this guy, Ted, Ted Shaw, who's like Ted. her boss, Ted, Teddy Shaw. Teddy um, Shaw. He's like, if Don Draper was chiller and nice basically <laughs> he's like a different creative genius anyway they've kind of had an affair during <gasps> i know scandal an affair um, on mad men i who would have guessed marital infidelity on the show oh my um, gosh and not even don this time anyway uh they have they sleep together basically finally after like being enamored with each other creatively and otherwise for a while they finally like get together and he's like i'm gonna leave my wife i mean it and Peggy's like, whoa. <laughs> and she's all conflicted because part of why she liked him is because he's not the kind of guy who would do that. He's not Don, but also she definitely wants to date Ted. And then later in the episode, Ted comes to her and he's like, I'm moving to California with my wife and family. You'll be glad I made this decision later. And her response is just, well, are you lucky to have decisions? Because all throughout the season, like the reason that Ted's there at all is because he and the uh, the firm that Don Draper had been working for, like they merged and Peggy had left. But then because of that merger, she was forced to come back and work with Don, which she had intentionally left doing. And now she had like begun this affair and he's just decided that it's not going to happen. And so they talk about in like the behind the episode, how a big theme for the season is like Peggy doesn't have decisions. She's gaining more power in the workplace. She's establishing herself in the field, but she is still basically powerless. And I felt a lot of that energy 
from how this poem was setting up the relationship between the snow and the ice and this like natural world development and the people who we meet in the poem it's like they it's not that they don't have agency and they don't have experience and feelings and all this other stuff but in the end it very much feels like they don't get to make decisions the snow is deciding the parameters of existence within this poem and you know i think part of the reason that the madman thing came to mind is because like that's often how a lot of these kinds of systems in the world operate you're granted a certain amount of agency you're granted a certain level of autonomy or growth but you end up bumping against like okay but you don't really have decisions and that's very much how a lot of refugee programs work and you know there's a degree to which immigration itself kind of works that way where you know you as an individual can try to immigrate to another country or you can enter the refugee program and then be placed in another country but on a larger level you don't really have decisions within that kind of system that doesn't mean you don't have a lot of personal agency but it means that like you are contained within something larger and that feels like sort of where the the snow is happening in this poem <laughs> yeah yeah totally um no that's really interesting and that actually reminds me of just a, another sort of analogy of 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 thinking about that kind of negotiating systems or something i was just listening to it's this uh this is palestine podcast um through the like institute of middle east understanding and the episode was about this new i guess documentary that's following the mayor of ramallah ramallah is in the west bank and and the way they were talking about it, and they actually the episode is great because they have the mayor on too who's like talking about it too but it's this situation where it's like the mayor has got to run the city like because he's a mayor like you know put on festivals you gotta you know do municipal stuff get the water to people sewage all this stuff but it's like oh yeah the west bank and ramallah are like occupied by israel and not just like in a nominal sense it's like literally you know israeli forces have the legal right to just do it like go wherever and the actual powers that a mayor has are incredibly incredibly limited and the mayor was talking about like we can't plan for the future basically so right. like anything we want to do we have to like have all these contingencies because it's like oh well maybe the israeli government will just decide to do this or whatever but it was this fairly interesting thing where it's like the mayor's got this really busy day. He's doing all this stuff. He's making lots of decisions. And no doubt, I'm sure like he has an impact on real people and stuff. Um, but then at the same time, it's like he's he's navigating in a system that is incredibly and absurdly limiting to the point where occasionally it's like farcical, where it's like, okay, he's like on the one hand trying to make sure that everyone in the city can have you know the the water supply that they need and then in the next minute they were talking about how like he has a meeting with you know uh, a german like ambassador or like some foreign ambassador 
trying to like assuage them of, of how he as the mayor can be better with Israel. Like basically like, how can I appease my occupier better? <laughs> wow. Which is just like kind of insane. Yeah. And it reminded me in that it, it speaks to the, the kind of, yeah, that complexity of, of agency within a sort of oppressive system. And I think that, that the snow is definitely, it's like in the winter in Minnesota, you can go outside, you can try to breathe when it's negative 20. It's not going to feel very good. Your nostril hairs are going to be like, mm -mm, I don't think so. You're going to have to wear every coat you've ever had in your whole life. And like, you know, if you, you know, like, it's like you can, you can bike in the winter, you have to wear goggles and a mask and a hood and like, you know, in, incredibly bizarre bike gloves. It's like, those are things you can do, but it's like the winter and the snow are like forcing you into a certain set of decisions that you can make basically. It also and, raises yeah. the barrier of entry. Like going out and biking is not actually a difficult activity under normal circumstances. You know, you, you go out and you bike for the most part. But <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden there are all of these hoops to jump through. Yeah, you have to get snow tires or fat tires. Those are expensive tires. And no, it's very true. The The costs are much higher. And, and it's interesting because it, it does... And the, the kind of whiteness of the snow and then also the, the geopolitics are definitely like an important element of this poem in, in some obvious ways. But, you know, just like the hunger borders this land, I thought was very evocative, too, of this kind of like the whole system of, of borders and also like imperialism, colonialism and, you know, what the West has done. And I've just been, you know, in this context too, of like just the, the specific history of, of her parents are not in, related to the U.S. war in Afghanistan. It, it was a, although in the book, Hard Damage, she has two amazing poems. The titles are Covert United States Involvement in Regime Change, one, and then there's Covert United States Involvement in Regime Change, two. <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, that's history right there, right? Those titles put me in mind of perception management and a bridge list of uh, operations by Solma Sharif, who, in an interview in 2017, Arya Aber said was one of the most important poets working at that time, which oh, wow. I wholeheartedly agree with. I absolutely <laughs> love pretty much everything she's ever done. But yeah, that's interesting because I, I hear that. Uh, resonance there for sure yeah definitely and in in Aber has definitely like recognized and gave a shout out to Sharif in terms of like her work being both just important but also like kind of one an influence um in her own work so I mean this this the covert U.S. involvement in regime change one it's like 1949 Syrian coup d'etat 49 to 53 Albania 51 to 56 Tibet 53 Iranian coup d'etat, 54 Guatemalan coup d'etat, 56 to 57 Syria, Operation Struggle, Straggle, Operation Wapen, 
59 to 2000, Cuba assassination attempts on Castro. Then there's like Cambodia, Bangkok plot, Congolese coup, Cuba, Cuba, DR, uh, South Vietnamese coup. And then at the end, 79 to 89, Afghanistan uh, Operation Cyclone, which was, I think, started by Jimmy Carter. And then kind of bringing it back to like, I don't really want to get into the whole media shit show about the war in Afghanistan right now because it's a it's a thick it's a thick mud but it's a a lot has been you know it's been four presidents in this war but I was reading something else but like in general U.S. involvement in Afghanistan has spanned eight presidents at least since at least in this one Jimmy Carter and onwards and then in the and then Aber has a whole poem about Operation Cyclone, which I think impacted her family specifically. And then covert U.S. involvement in regime change too. 80 to 92 El Salvador. There's Nicaragua, Granada, Panama, Kuwait, Haitian coup d'etat. 91 to 2000 Iraq, Resolution 687. 91 to 04 Iraqi coup d'etat. Indonesia, Yugoslavian coup d'etat, Syria in 2005, then there's a dot, dot, dot. Then, you know, obviously we get up to war in Afghanistan 2001, Iraq war 2003. Anyway, it's, I was thinking about it sort of with that line, hunger borders this land where Western countries, the United States do a bunch of shit, metal, regime change, wage wars, in other countries and then they have their borders they you know they create the conditions we create the conditions that create refugees because people have to leave the countries that have been destroyed and then when we let some of them in we create these systems that are oppressive and hard to navigate in their own way i don't know it's just like it made me think about that with hunger borders this land And then I was also thinking about it, which, because I think this is a very interesting part of the poem, and it's kind of like the turn, like one of the big turns. She's talking about, the poem has that question, like, who'd want to come here, basically? And then it's like, who'd loiter around cricks glistening with oil, which, once gone, will, like death, at last democratize us all, which is such a, a banger of a line for one thing. It's also amazing, like rhythmically, syntactically, it's really slows down. It's like glistening with oil, comma, which, comma, once gone, comma, line break, will, like death, at last, democratize us all. And basically, you know, it figures oil, which, you know, has obviously been you know, the, the kind of material source of, you know, Western intervention and violence in, you know, the Middle East and, you know, Central Asia and South Asia and stuff and around the world. And also, of course, like just the, the machine that has powered imperialism and colonialism. And it's just a great line because it's like, which one's gone? It's like, oh, yeah, fossil fuels, non-renewable <laughs> resource. Side note, burning the planet, gonna run out maybe at some point. Hopefully it doesn't run out because we'll stop using it. 
And then like, once it's gone, maybe we'll democratize us all, which is to say like, could like level the playing field, like, cause it, it has created the sort of severe power imbalances in the world. I think it's also like using the word democratize there is so powerful because so much of the cover for a lot of U.S. interventions is, well, we're making the world safe for democracy or bringing democracy to Afghanistan or Iraq or, you know, any number of other places when what's really going on is that we bring democracy, quote unquote, bring democracy um, to places that have significant economic interests for the United States. And yeah, are you really going to democratize the world or exactly as you said, are you going to sow ongoing seeds of instability? The reason that the United States was funding militants in Afghanistan in the 70s and 80s was to keep the world safe for democracy because the communists were going to take it over. The reason that the United States goes into Afghanistan 20 years later and then stays for another 20 years is because after 9-11, we're going to Number one, get the terrorists who, by the way, are the same folks who we were giving money to last time. And also, we're going to bring democracy to Afghanistan. And it's like like 40 years later, and very little has changed in terms of the stated goals of these various interventions. Yeah. During that time, there have been so many global humanitarian crises that the United States has absolutely abdicated responsibility for. Bill Clinton talks about the Rwandan genocide as being the biggest mistake of his presidency, not being more involved there. The genocide happening in Sudan and Darfur in 2007, uh, and, you know, not just in 2007, but, like, these major crises where, you know, whatever your view of international humanitarian intervention if there were times when that was called for, these would seem to be those in a way that like invading Afghanistan or Iraq just don't, which I think gets to this point of like, when do we decide we need to democratize the world as the United States? When do we decide there is an interest in furthering these quote unquote humanitarian uh, efforts, which I think a lot of commentators right now have done a good job of pointing out like, sure there was rhetoric about oh we're doing it for you know afghan women or we're doing it for democracy and really poking holes in that you know veil uh, that rhetorical veil around a lot of these international interventions because there are just so many like if that was your criteria where would you actually be focusing your efforts right now well it might not be in the places where they currently do but yeah i think the using the word democratize carries so much weight right there. Totally. That is all so right. Yeah. And just like in many of the regime chains, changes that, that are mentioned in those poems are like a democratically elected leader who was maybe a little left wing. And so they were like, well, what about a right wing dictator? How about that for democracy? That seems pretty chill. So no, it's, it's totally right. Um, and yeah, just like, and also like including the will like death at last democratize us all just like uh, oil and death. I don't know. The, the oil and the kind of industrial aspect of it is, is throughout the poem. And so like, I think that that was interesting to, to hit, hit that moment in the poem. Um, and then 
sort of look back and, you know, the warehouse is, is the site for where the refugees go, which I think is interesting. And that the smokestacks are the first thing, you know, to bear witness to, um, which I think is also a, a very choice phrase in a way. One thing that I appreciated about this poem, which I think actually gets to this moment in the turn, was there's, and I, I could be reading into this, but in the United States, the discourse in the mainstream is often like, these people want to come to the US to like, you know, get their free lunch or whatever, and like all this crap. And like, we're the holy golden country where everyone wants to be and it's so great here and all that stuff and I <laughs> part of me was like I just appreciated the the poems kind of like who'd want to go to this place like there's this ragged trees and this warehouse and these smokestacks and like in one way it, it's it's really flipping that narrative but then in the other way which the turn gets to is like the one thing that i was that this poem i think is really like the way that perspective is working in the poem uh i think is like one of its real it's not just strengths but it's just like i find particularly moving and i didn't notice it quite at first but it's very you know the poem begins almost at a great distance like almost like you're not even in a place, you know, like how easy for snow to turn to ice, for snow to disappear the light from the ragged frame of chestnut trees. And then eventually we get, eventually we get to this sense of, of this place, this warehouse, and, you know, we get hunger borders, this land, but still the perspective is fairly, like you don't, the speaker's not like there necessarily, or you don't get that sense, you know, it's like, you know, and, and it's speaking almost like kind of like a, an omniscient narrator would in a, in a novel or something like hunger borders this land where snow turns all the immigrants, you know, and this sort of descriptive scope is quite vast. And, and then, and which makes it interesting to have the question then, but who of their free will would ever want to climb that fence? Because it's coming from a very general, like poet as poet kind of authoritative place like rather than like oh i'm a i'm a poet speaker who's in a particular place having a particular thought it's like no the the poem is like who would want to live here you know and and it kind of continues that way up until the moment with the oil democratizing us all and then after that we have this turn that is very slowly zooming in on where the speaker actually is so it's like oil which once gone will like death at last democratize us all on the same line as that on potato sacks in the snow-capped abandoned warehouse there huddle and sit the soiled refugees um which is like the first time there are people in a place in the poem basically. And it, it's the sentence draws it out. Like, it's not like the soiled refugees are huddling on potato sacks. It's like the people are, are placed sort of at the end of the sentence structure in a way. I mean, the sentence continues, but, 
you know, the soiled refugees, bereft, cow-eyed, picking dirt off their scalps, their shelled souls. And then we have among them, wordless is my mother. And so we zoom in a little closer and then, and nestled on her lap is I. And so we finally located the speaker in the, the fourth to last line of this poem. And, you know, as an interesting side note, the, the use of I instead of me is very interesting there. Um, there's elsewhere in the book, there's a lot of, there's this one beautiful poem where, so, I mean, so Aber grew up in Germany. So like, you know, is trilingually raised with English, German and um, Dari or Farsi. And, and so Rilke is a big influence for Aber, not uncomplicated, but there's this section that's, that's called Rilke and I, and it's like, um, I think this line of Rilke's that's like, I let you all happen, beauty and terror or something. Um, but then each section is like one word of that. So it's like, ich and I, and then it's like loss and let. Um, and it kind of, it kind of is a poem about each word in a way, which is very fascinating. Um, but in that one, you know, there's like this kind of meditation on, on the I. It's like, before I found you, there was only I, I of dampened doors, I of linden trees lush. You know, why is the English I so prominent, so searing on the page? So there's this kind of like question that is asked there and then throughout, I think, just like about the, the formation of the self and the kind of identity, like, uh, which I think is like highlighted a little bit by kind of oddly saying nestled on her lap is I instead of either I am nestled on her lap or uh, is, is me or something like that. But at any rate, and then we have this real emotive, you know, in love with the light of the first snow of my life. Like, I'm not quite sure exactly like the depths of all the meanings for this choice, but it feels incredibly intentional in the poem to not include the speaker's self until almost the very end. And to have this kind of shift in perspective happen a little after the middle of the poem, after this kind of oil democratization. And in some ways it made me think a little bit, especially with the context of like, you know, this, who are people, what is a, who counts as a person, this kind of representation of people and individuals, um, and then this sort of like the national politics of that. And, you know, there's like the line of the poem, the there huddle and sit, the soiled refugees, you know, brought to mind the Emma Lazarus poem that's on the Statue of Liberty, New Colossus, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp, you know, beside the golden door, or whatever, this kind of welcoming of the huddled masses. And, you know, there's the huddle in that, their huddle and sit the soiled refugees. And I'm like, I think about, you know, even in the discourse right now, or like my sense of it, it's like, <laughs> do we let in the huddled masses or do we not let in the huddled masses? And it's like, even though that Lazarus 
poem on the Statute of Liberty is a kind of invitation and welcoming. It's also a very broad strokes conflationary sense of who these people are. And I feel like this poem is sort of deliberately playing into that to kind of subvert it, where we kind of begin most of the poem, like it's sort of, you know, flip like the perspective of the Lazarus Colossus poem is from the inside of the US or the West welcoming out. And this poem is, you know, coming in, but the coming in is framed like, like who'd wanna live there. Like it has sort of the connotations of the quote unquote huddled masses in the new Colossus poem. But then there's this kind of the soiled refugees, which starts to play it in, play into that. But then it's like among them wordless is my mother, where we get very specific and individual and personal. And then and nestled on her lap is I. And the I as an I and not like a me is like another kind of like, I am a, <laughs> I am a lyric I, like I am a, a person with a full poetic being who wrote this fucking poem, you like Western assholes. Um, <laughs> and like, I don't know. And like, I am not, you know, like it, it goes, it's, it references the kind of, the huddled masses, but then it it breaks that down and subverts it and brings out the individual and the personal by the end, which I think is like so. And I think the way that the perspective moves to do that in that order is like really, really powerful and, and beautiful and, and draws that out in a way. And then the way that it returns sort of like at the end, like so odd and doubtful still of what lengths the frost wills to go, bringing back to that snow, which was talked about in the beginning, kind of re reintroduces the kind of cold, oppressive landscape that we sort of encountered in the beginning. But then we see it through her eyes, the speaker's eyes, which I think is really profound too, where we first hadn't seen it that way. We had seen it through a quote unquote object, more like objective or neutral perspective or impersonal anyway. I don't know. And I just was like that, that's like the, just incredibly, uh, an incredible moment. And I, I just found it so like, when I think about like all sides of how it's talked about here, like the war in Afghanistan or any kind of foreign conflict, it's just the total devastation and cost on individuals there is just, it's only shown in that kind of spectacular, like total victimy and like un, un, like masses look. It's just like, look at these poor victims who aren't even individuals. They're just like a group it's of- all, It's like, it's all the people running for the plane. Exactly. You know, those are the images that stick. Yeah, my mom was just talking to me recently. She visited relatives and they watch, you know, like the cable news stuff. And this was like two days later. And cable news is still just constantly replaying those images because they're captivating images 
but the story that they tell is so vastly incomplete and so flattening because you're so right like what is the the quote-unquote cost of a war right like there's the deaths there's the injuries but fundamentally every single person living in the country that's at war is living their entire life and so maybe the war is one event in it but it can shape an entire life with trauma or physical injury or forced removal like a a person with as much individual complexity and humanity as anyone else has to reckon with that and then that's replicated literally millions of times over is Mm -hmm. just you know framing conflict in that way and and reframing conflict in that way is so important and yeah you're right it, it almost never happens um, you might get one person's story, but it is only the story of their pain, usually. You know, like, here's the story of one person in one situation. And even that individual story doesn't necessarily capture what it means that it is like a human life that is as real and as complicated as the usually white journalist who goes to tell that story. Mm-hmm. Like, that, there is still that imbalance there which is which is a lot and and there are you know there are exceptions and there are some some stories that get told in more complexity but it's mostly you're right it is like these arresting group images or it is just lumped into this idea of huddled masses rather than meaningfully reframing totally no i know it reminds me of like in the early pandemic it's like in italy we saw you know they had the like singing from the from the like rafters or whatever because they couldn't be you know, close together. And that was such a beautiful, like image that we all saw of just like really hard times, but like getting through it. And then like the only images we saw of India were just like the funeral pyres or whatever. And And we only really heard about what was happening in India during the direst portion of the pandemic. Yes. Um, Sort of something similar that happened with like Navajo folks in the United States. There was a huge focus on how COVID was running rampant on uh, reservations, but there's been very little coverage of the fact that vaccination rates are higher than almost anywhere else in the country on reservations amongst a population who, if there is a population in the country that has every right to be distrustful of the government, it is the native population, and they simultaneously now have the highest vaccination rates. Yeah. But which of those stories gets more airplay yeah it reminds me there was a recent conversation that was came out in the the jewish currents uh newsletter it was between um maria hanan and megan masumi and they're both kind of i think they're scholars and both afghan and uh maria hanan was like one thing I'm thinking about a lot these days is how Americans views of Afghanistan tend to be shaped by when they choose to tune in. They tuned in in 2001. And now once again, everyone's looking at Afghanistan. We're hearing about the fall of Kabul as if it's a moment of rupture, which it undoubtedly is, but it didn't happen overnight. And then Masumi says in the US, the rhetoric that was repeated in the US was like, we're going to go get the bad guys and we don't care who gets in our way. Uh, They were going to engage in it at any cost. And most of that cost was borne by Afghan civilians. But in the U.S., we didn't hear about Afghan civilians. We didn't hear about all the bloodshed. 
the majority of people in Afghanistan are age 25 and younger. What does that tell you? How many times have our people had to physically produce new human beings to replace those who were either killed or they left? How many more times do the civilians, the people of Afghanistan, have to incur the costs and sacrifice their lives for accidents of history that have nothing to do with them? I don't think Americans often consider that, which I think, I don't know, spoke to, I think, kind of what you were saying of like living their lives and like having kids and, and yeah, it's just, it's another, it's like we were talking about how like, you know, immigration systems are kind of this constrained system that people have to navigate and live through and all that stuff. And war like wartime is a as another more extreme kind of system in a way that involves incredible violence, whether that's, you know, passing through checkpoints or like hiding from airstrikes or things like that. Those are those are kinds of like constrained things. And it's it's and at some point for many people. It's too much to live. You can't live there anymore. And many don't. So many people are killed. And then so many other people have to leave and and enter a also constricting, but definitely less constricting situation. Um, and I think that's, I don't know, it, it's, it, I was thinking again, just about the like, I, in love with the light of the first note of my life, so odd and doubtful still, what lengths the frost wills to go and what shape it will then take of that kind of like, oh, I'm here now in this new place. What is the frost like going to do to me <laughs> in a way? Like what shape yeah. will it take around my life basically? And then just the last kind of a, like circling way back to like that idea of personification of like the willingness, the the willingness of the frost, which is another thing that's like, all of these things are like policy choices. It's like immigration systems are decided upon, you know, like we can do, we could make it much better. Um, and, you know, not A, not wait six years to process visas for Afghans, and then try to rush them at the very last minute after we leave super fast. You know, we can we can let not have crazy arbitrary quotas about who we let in from what country and if they're only skilled workers and like, I don't know, all of these things that are set up are deliberate choices that are made and remade by countries and governments. And of course they like, reflect the values of a country and they reflect a tension between you know uh cynically one could say a wealthy country's desire for exploitable labor and a wealthy country's desire to keep its own people in power and in having the privileges that they have i mean i think someone had said something about the, how the democratic party wanted credit for not being harsh on refugees, but didn't want the political consequences of that, of letting actual refugees into the country. And I think 
that really summed it up in a lot of ways. But just kind of like thinking about the wills in that part of the poem of like the choice in the poem to personify the snow and the frost makes it an unnatural process, even though, of course, it is natural in reality. It makes it the decision, like what will the frost decide to do with the shape of my life or something like that? And I think that's a really, really powerful moment that that part of the poem really brings out. Absolutely. And she, in an interview about the book, said the self in hard damage is so mistrustful of her own capabilities and beliefs. And I think you really feel that in those lines where, you know, there's there's a lot of uncertainty about what the, the frost will, where, what is the will? If it's hostile, like that's kind of it. Uh, you get the feeling. And she also said in that interview, atrocity and beauty always work in tandem, creating an almost unbearable equilibrium. And I think that you really feel that in those lines as well, where there is this kind of, wonder at the snow and there is this deep fear about what would happen if the will of the of the snow and the frost is malicious and it is this kind of unbearable equilibrium because that the eye is not empowered there and just i've been thinking about the the perspective element to it that you brought up and it reminded me of this article from a couple years ago in the guardian behemoth bully thief how the english language is taking over the planet and it's about how on a linguistic level we like orient ourselves to the world uh, and there's this little section uh that i think is really interesting because it gets sort of at like that perspective element that is embodied in that eye where the eye sort of sticks out and it's exactly what you were saying it's a very it's a more complicated especially in the poetry world way of putting a self into a poem but this little section is about how language is used to orient to the world. So for if language connects people socially, it also connects them to a place. The linguist Nicholas Evans has described how, uh, I'm not positive how to pronounce this, Kyardild, a language spoken in Northern Australia requires a speaker to continually orient themselves according to the cardinal directions, where an English speaker would orient, them, would orient things according to their own perception, my left, my right, my front, my back, a speaker of Kyardild thinks in terms of north, south, east, and west. As a consequence, speakers of Kyardild and those of several other languages that share this feature possess, quote-unquote, absolute reckoning or a kind of perfect pitch for direction. It also means removing oneself as the main reference point for thinking about space. As Evans writes in his own experiences learning the language, one aspect of speaking Kyardild then is learning that the landscape is more important and objective than you are. Kyardild grammar literally puts everyone in their place. And that kind wow. of like, right? Like, isn't that incredible? Like the, the way that just the language you operate in, I think part of what put this in mind is also thinking about the, the fact that she's trilingual and kind of moves between several different languages. I don't know specifically how all of those languages work in terms of creating place and all of that, but just the the primacy of language as a, you know, talking about systems, as a system that informs how you just think about reality and how you're able to describe it to yourself and others, and how that then shapes your view of the world. Are you orienting the world to you or you to the world? And that kind of reframing is so powerful. And I feel like that's kind of what's at work here and what you were describing, like taking 
putting the poetic eye in this place as you know this the speaker in the poem putting themselves in in that poetic eye right there i feel like it does have that profound kind of placement and it feels a little bit like it is intentionally as you were describing not just where it's placed in that sentence but where it's placed in the poem is it's taking the world around the eye and placing the eye in it rather than putting the eye forward and putting the personal experience really loudly at the beginning it is bringing the world in around and creating sort of an eye out of the world in that moment as well which i find really interesting and paradoxically sort of as we're talking about it it would seem like doing that would uh, like detract from the eye, but it in fact builds it even more because what happens in that little portion there is I think a mini turn where after the eye is introduced, we then begin seeing things from that perspective. Whereas before we were building into that perspective uh, in the poem, which is kind of fascinating. Yeah. And then I, and also what's up with the turtles? (laughs) <laughs> that's that's my last question because they're there and they're literally there apparently but i i don't know what to do with them <laughs> jack literally yeah. hundreds of them literally hundreds of turtles um which i don't think is a wisconsin thing that i've ever heard of <laughs> no so well or okay. a germany thing that i really know about i mean there's like symbolic resonance maybe with you know the fact that many refugees travel by water guess yeah no it's a very good question um my the symbolic thing you brought up was definitely part of where i was going with it i mean the thing about the wisconsin felt like it was more of an inspiration less than like this is set in wisconsin uh specifically but but i do think that they're the symbolic thing of you know like refugees crossing the mediterranean in very very precarious and dangerous conditions to uh, get to Europe. But then also partly like now it's giving a new sort of literal meaning to snow turns all the immigrants in that sort of wintry thing as kind of freezing these turtles to death in a way is one way to read that. And then they're washing to shore frozen. The, the other part that is really interesting and powerful is that the simile that the turtles are compared to is what brings us to the barbed wire fence, which then brings us to the refugees leaving their home, like leaving the war conditions in a way where it's like they're frozen like grenades of tear gas thrown across a barbed wire fence, which is pretty brutal. It's in, it's a powerful image and it is kind of apt in a way of like the way the grenade looks a little like a grenade looks a little could look a little like a shell of a turtle but it's also it gets to the violence of right because then it's like who would want to climb that fence like it's really just the literally hundreds of them that comes in no it's true because then it then it becomes a simile too where it's this interesting moment of kind of figurative use but emphasize the literalness of it okay I did some Googling that I should have done before this episode. This is from The Guardian, 2018. Hundreds of apparently flash-frozen turtles wash ashore in New England. 
an unusual number of sea turtles have washed ashore New England in the recent cold snap. 219 washed up one day on Cape Cod, 173 had died. It was like they were flash frozen flippers in all weird positions like they were swimming. Wow. So I don't know what specifically, but I guess there's a phenomenon where when it gets cold very suddenly, they are just in the water and then they freeze. And then they obviously can't move. So then they go to the shore. Yeah. Oof. I mean, it's an interesting way of figuring migration as this kind of sudden thing that immobilizes you but then at the same time forces you to move in a particular direction that you don't have control over like you just follow the current of the water to the shore and then when you get onto shore you can kind of i mean a lot of them die but then the ones that not all of them did and then you might unfreeze i guess um jesus that is wow fascinating and powerful and weird (laughs) yeah shall we read it again i think we should read it again this is first snow by aria aber how easy for snow to turn to ice for snow to disappear the light from the ragged frame of chestnut trees around the warehouse by what's left of wild chicory scraped sculptures, weeping dog bane. Hunger borders this land, while snow turns all to immigrants. Snow salts the embankment where turtles wash ashore, literally hundreds of them, frozen hard like grenades of tear gas thrown across a barbed wire fence. But who of their free will would ever want to climb that fence to live here? Who would pray each night for grace, hoping to pass through the darkened veil of shit to bear witness to smokestacks, wild champion knapweed? Who'd loiter around cricks, glistening with oil, which once gone will, like death, at last democratize us all. On potato sacks in the snow-capped abandoned warehouse, there huddle and sit the soiled refugees, bereft, cow-eyed, picking dirt off their scalps, their shelled soles. Among them, wordless, is my mother, and nestled on her lap is I, in love with the light of the first snow of my life, so odd and doubtful still of what lengths the frost wills to go and what shape it will then take. Jack, what uh, what do you got going on? What are you listening to? What are you reading? What are you thinking about? Ooh, what are you yes. watching? Oh my gosh, a great question. Thank you. <laughs> Came up with it myself. So 
pretty proud of it. No big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, aside from reading hard damage, which has been amazing. Um, I have as usual been listening to a lot of podcasts. I have two. Yeah. Two that have been very good. One that I alluded to, which I find really good, which is the this is Palestine podcast. Yeah, that sounded really interesting. Yeah, it is. It's really interesting. It's it's through the Institute of Middle East Understanding. And they do like, you know, they I mean, they covered a lot of the when when it was in the news, um, they were like following that. Um, They also do like, you know, they have one episode, recent episode that's called Love Under Israeli Apartheid. They examine like the kind of complicated roles that you know the Palestinian Authority plays and I don't know I think it's like it's another one of those things where it's like we only get regular news about Palestine when things are so 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 extreme but and so like in the kind of lull news times it's been I've I've really loved this podcast because they do they highlight both like individual personal stories that aren't kind of that that still incorporate the kind of political framework that I think is is needed. There was a there was a powerful kind of turning point in some ways on the conversation about Israeli Palestine, but I think for that turn potentially to like continue or become deeper, I think like people need to be re-engaged continually with the topic and with what's going on. And I think this podcast does a really good job and it's been very helpful for me. So I recommend that. And then the other one that I have enjoyed a lot is it's called The Take. It's a very short podcast through Al Jazeera. And the host, I think, is actually from outside Chicago, uh, Malika Bilal. Yeah, it's just a kind of like, 20 minute thing about you know what's going on but they because it's Al Jazeera they cover a lot of different topics you know they covered you know like more closely the Belarusian athlete who was seeking asylum they had an episode on you know the lawsuit that Mexico filed against U.S. gun companies to sort of stop guns from just coming into the country and stuff it's a good one for both like different angles and also different topics um and it's it's a nice short length which i appreciate (laughs) definitely that's really cool yeah um yeah what uh what have you been uh, watching or reading or listening to these days jack well uh quite a few different things i definitely watched the white lotus on hbo max oh yeah um which i really enjoyed it it seemed like a very nuanced take on the kind of uh race and class stuff that goes on in a very fancy resort and yeah i was really into it um definitely didn't catch on right away but i watched like five episodes right before the finale and then i watched the finale and it was very good 
And, okay. <laughs> uh, it's definitely, it's very dark, but not without, I don't know, I didn't feel like it was oppressively dark. Like, it was definitely a bunch of stuff going on that you're like, ugh, ugh. Okay, yeah. But it had enough kind of weird and surreal and, uh, I don't know, it's not without humor either. So it's got tension and it's got all this stuff going on. It also has a great soundtrack. Um, just this constant or s- mostly constant, like really jarring percussion that's like puts you on edge. Oh, no. So even fairly normal stuff can be going on, but you have this like building percussive background. So there's this one character, Shane, who's just a jerk. And he's mad that he's not in the room that he wanted to be in. And he's there on his honeymoon. And his wife is like, the room we have is really nice. Let's just enjoy this. He's like, no, no, we will. But like, we definitely booked this other room. It's like, (laughs) okay. And it clearly becomes like, what's actually ruining this is the fact that he won't let it go. And she's just like, Shane, come on. He's like, yeah, no, 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 totally, babe. I'm just going to call my mom's travel agent. He's like a pit bull. He'll get this done. He's like, um... But while these conversations go on, there's like this building percussion in the background that's just like. Oh my God. And so, like, while these conversations are happening, there's some tension rising in the conversation, but the added element of this, like, louder and more present percussion just makes the whole thing just like. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. The other thing I recommend is the movie Blood Red Sky that is on Netflix. It you kind of to tell the premise of the movie gives away a lot about it. I think no matter what, you would know what it is. Um, if you like clicked on it and were like, hmm, do I want to watch this? I think you would figure it out. If you don't want to know, uh stop listening. It's basically uh <laughs> terrorists take over a plane. And this woman is traveling with her child and she needs to keep him safe. And she's a vampire. <laughs> it's, it's really good. Wait, what? <laughs> this woman with a mysterious illness, she's a vampire, is taking a trip with her son to get treated in New York for being a vampire. And so she's on a plane and it gets hijacked by terrorists who have some oh kind of- Oh my mantle. God. They're going to like crash the plane to crash the stock market and short all their stocks and make a bunch of money. Um, but she is cool. vampire. And so when the <laughs> terrorists are taking over the plane, right, exactly. So they're like threatening her son and she's like, what now? <laughs> <And then> she, <laughs> she vamps him. But it, it's more, it's a little more complicated than that. Okay. Um, all right. And it is, it's just a well-made movie that's like an interesting premise and well executed um it is originally i believe a german film and so you got to make your subs or dubs choice i am subs all the way because i just can't stand dubs subs Uh, for life subs for life so that's a good one i yeah really good Mm -hmm.